Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in the City podcast series from the Center for Teaching Excellence and Innovation, also called City, at Rush University. Teaching in the City features conversations with faculty and staff on topics related to teaching and learning at one of the nation's leading academic medical centers. My name is Dr. Angela Solik, and I'm the director of City. It has been my own personal mission to help faculty become better educators, and leading City helps me on that mission. Hi, my name is Angela Solik, and I'm the director of Rush University Center for Teaching Excellence and Innovation, fondly called City. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Susan Bloom, Katie Lee Bunting, Casey Edwardson, and Jesse Stommel about an interesting term called ungrading, which is also referred to as alternative grading. You can read the descriptions of who each of these people are in the description of this particular podcast, but for right now, I'm going to have the participants give us a very brief introduction, including their position and where they work. You're up first, Susan. Thanks so much, Angela. Happy to be here. My name is Susan Bloom. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana in the U.S. Hi, I'm Katie Lee Bunting. My pronouns are she, her. I feel really humbled and excited to be part of this conversation. I'm an assistant professor of teaching in the Masters of Occupational Therapy program at the University of British Columbia, which is on Musqueam First Nation land in British Columbia, Canada. Casey? Hi, I'm Casey Edwardson. I'm a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Laboratory Sciences at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas. Jesse? Hi, I'm Jesse Stommel, and uh, pronouns are he, him, and I am a faculty member in the writing program at the University of Denver, and I'm also the executive director of Hybrid Pedagogy, the Journal of Critical Digital Pedagogy. Yes, we all need to check that out too, for sure. All right, we're going to jump right into the questions today. The first question is, why did you become interested in this topic of ungrading or alternative grading. So Casey, I'm going to have you talk first. All right, so for me, it was kind of a two-part thing on the day of my graduation from my PhD. My advisor told me he was taking a semester off so that he could ungrade his classes. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. At that same time, I was doing a review of Midwest medical lab tech and medical lab science programs. And I found that the grading scales were all over the place where out of 21 programs, there were 20 unique grading scales. And that kind of infuriated me because different programs require different percentages. So for example, one program actually had a minimum of an 80% to get a C. And that just seemed weird to me. So having the thought of my PhD advisor ungrading combined with this frustration, I started looking at ways of kind of mitigating those differences between the laboratory programs and alternative grading was kind of an answer to that. It's that's kind of interesting. Like the the most like mundane little thing <laughs> got you interested in it. That's that's yep. really cool. How about you, Susan? Okay, it's kind of my whole life story here, but I will give you kind of the proximate cause and the medium cause and then maybe the ultimate cause, um, but I'll try to do it very briefly. 
the, the proximate cause was that I had written about education for about 15 years and I had become very familiar with the literature on motivation and the fact that grades are the quintessential extrinsic motivator. And for all kinds of reasons, this is not a good way to motivate students. In particular, I read the work of Alfie Cohn. I had written a book called I Love Learning, I Hate School, an Anthropology of College. And thank you for laughing <laughs> um, because myself, I had always loved school. And for me, school was a really great way of learning. But doing my ethnographic research, I found that many students don't feel that way. And they're perfectly wonderful learners. They just have found school oppressive and not necessarily conducive to learning. So at the end of that book, which came out in 2016, so I finished writing it in 2015, I had a sentence that said, if I could change one thing about education, it would be to get rid of grades. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter in the book about grades uh, called, what do I have to do to get an A? And I was really kind of in a, 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 more than a funk, I was really troubled by what I saw as a mismatch between what I knew about learning and the practices we were doing in the academy. And I had been slowly relinquishing my own focus on grading for a very long time, um, introducing the idea of reflection and self-assessment and trying to give a lot more narrative feedback rather than focusing on the grade. But I didn't know I really wanted to get rid of grades and I didn't think I could. And mm. then I came across a very small book by Star Saxstein called Hacking Assessment, how to go gradeless in a conventional or traditional schools, traditional grades school. And so for me, that was the kind of key that freed me to actually get rid of all grades until the end of the semester in my own classes. So I went into my department chair and I said, I am not grading anymore. Here's a book that says it's okay. And um, I have not put a grade on anything except at the end of the semester since then. And that was in 2016. Um, and I would never change anything since then, uh, anything um, at all. But then that inspired me, my own experience inspired, inspired me to do a little bit of writing. And then I decided I needed company in this endeavor. And so I went out seeking other people who were also doing it. And I found Jesse Stommel and many others who were also embarked on the same adventure of how to help students learn. So that's kind of the medium end quick answer and it wasn't very quick I apologize that that's awesome it's fascinating though I know the other participants are probably thinking the exact same thing so so Katie and after Katie we'll go to Jesse and then we'll jump yeah so I am thinking the same thing Angela because um it was through Susan's book ungrading that I came to this work so for me, I would say, like, I my background is as an occupational therapist, and I taught clinically for 10 years before I moved into education, where I've been nine years now. And when I moved into education, I was conditioned <laughs> through traditional education in Canada 
that uh, to do a good job and to do what was expected of me. That's how I had succeeded in elementary school, high school, undergrad, graduate school was like what's expected of me and then reaching toward that goal, which very much, much aligns with traditional grading. Um, so when I moved into education, I was just really focused on, okay, like, how can I do a good job here? How are people doing this? Um, and so I stepped into um, traditional grading methods. And I, I always felt unsettled with that approach. There was always something sort of within me that was telling me this wasn't the best way to do it, that this wasn't right. Um, but I struggled with naming that, I think, because again, I was just wanting to do a good job. And I felt like, you know, to prove my worth in being there was to sort of do what I saw other folks doing. No, no judgment on what other folks are doing, because it's very, very common um, to use traditional approaches to, to grading. And so um, this, uh, I teach a first year theory course in our master's of occupational therapy program. It was right before it was the end of term, the winter term before the pandemic hit. Um, and I remember, you know, sitting in one of our labs, I was like invigilating half of the class. I didn't even know that term invigilating until I started in education. Um, but I was invigilating half of the class and I'm sitting there and I teach in quite a relational way, which I think has been, I, I certainly have stepped more into over the last few years, but all that to say that like really central to who I am as a person and my teaching philosophy is, is relationship. So, you know, I'm sitting there, I see students coming into the room they're looking tired, their eyes are red, they're looking really stressed, there is not that energy, you know, vibe and joy that's typically there in the teaching space. And, you know, while I don't, while I'm not so like, such a megalomaniac to think I have total control over how these students are feeling in their life, I couldn't help but be very aware that like the decision that I made around how I was assessing their learning in this class was causing them harm, was hurting them, you know, and I don't feel like that's hyperbole, you know, I was harming the well-being of these students, and that it was completely unnecessary. So as I was sitting there, I just had this real um, clarity that I didn't want to do this anymore, and that it wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. And then when the pandemic hit, and I'd had sort of ideas bubbling in the back of my head, but I just hadn't brought them forward. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, you know, I think for many of us, the oppressive systems that pervade our entire society and therefore are present in higher ed became really visible, you know, and um, so for me, that hegemony that weighs heavily in higher ed institutions in Canada, and I think in the States too, um, made it really clear to me um, of how oppressive many of the choices are that we make, that I was making as an educator. Um, and that those choices were sort of systemically at a systems level supported. But with the pandemic, I think the experience for many educators was that, you know, while it was a really stressful, frantic time, it was also an opportunity where, um, you know, folks just wanted to keep their program going. And if I had a good rationale, I had the liberty to move away from traditional methods of assessment and really embrace more non-traditional alternative approaches to teaching and learning, as well as, you know, assessment of student learning. And so I felt like I just had room and I, I had more agency to, to make changes that I felt were more in line with 
you know, who I am personally with my teaching philosophy, and that I hoped would really center students as human beings and really center humanity in student assessment. And also during the pandemic, I leaned heavily on teaching podcasts, and I can't remember which one it was, but as my husband was teaching our kids at home and struggling, I would leave the house, take our dog for a walk, and listen to teaching podcasts, and that's where I heard you speaking, Susan, and I just... A light, I thought, yes, this is it. And I ordered your book and I was actually looking through your book today and I have so many underlines saying yes and mic drop and oh my gosh, yes, wow. And, you know, and, and like curse words of like, holy curse word. And just like, it was just like, <laughs> yes, you know, so, so that's how it started for me. And I've just, you know, tried to keep up that momentum since. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I bet you Susan is smiling very widely right now. I think I need to jump in here and say that I laughed out loud as you were saying that. So I'm so <laughs> that we could help you curse words and all big. I love, it. love it. So Jesse, last but not least, how did you get interested in this stuff? Yeah. So I, I started teaching, I was a TA, I started teaching as a TA in 1999. And then 2001, I started as instructor of record and I was really influenced at the start of my career by three different teachers that I co-taught with. From the start of my career, collaborative teaching and co-teaching was a huge part of my development as a teacher. And the three teachers that influenced me the most were R.L. Widman, Marion Keene, and Martin Bickman. In 2001, when I started teaching my first class of, as instructor of record, I was influenced specifically by Martin Bickman who was the only teacher that I had in all of undergrad, all of graduate school, I think all of K through 12, who did anything that even resembles ungrading or alternative approaches to grading. And so when I started teaching in 2001, I adopted some of his approaches and philosophies and was influenced a great deal by him. And so because of that, I haven't put a grade on a piece of student work ever in my, uh, I guess, how many years is that? It's way wow. too many years. That's 20, a long time. <laughs> one year less than me. So I don't want to even know that. <laughs> 22 or 23 years of my teaching career. And I started doing work as a facu in faculty development in 2003, 2005. And that was really when I started to think about what the connection was between my teaching philosophies, a lot of which were influenced by my mentors, as well as by work in critical pedagogy by people like Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks, mm -hmm. and really coming to a sense of what would it look like to name and start talking about the philosophy that undergirds my approach to assessment. Kind of fast forward to around 2017, and that's when I started writing more publicly using the term ungrading. Um, I had previously written about grades in various different other posts. I have one piece that's specifically about um, bell hooks, learning management systems, and the grade, essentially arguing that in the learning management system, all roads lead back to the grade book, and then thinking through some of the philosophies of bell hooks and trying to imagine how critical pedagogy would um, ask us to reimagine or rethink our approaches to assessment. And so ultimately, I guess I would say that it's hard for me to talk about when I started thinking about ungrading or doing the work of ungrading, because to some extent, I've never done anything else. But one of the things that I think is really important is the way that the community of people who are doing this work alongside me have constantly asked me 
to reinspect my own approaches and to rethink my own approaches. So I guess the answer is that I've always been doing it. And also I'm always constantly figuring out how to do it alongside some really amazing folks. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jesse. I think like just in this first question, there is so much passion and so much feeling of empowerment. I think that anybody listening right now will already will feel that because, you know, I got goosebumps from head to toe just during that first question. So that, that gives me, it shows me this is awesome what we're doing here today. So if someone, by the way, has never even heard of this term, right. And they listen to that whole first question, like, I don't even know what they're talking about. What are we talking about here? So what does this mean? I'm going to have Susan um, go first on this one. Thanks. And one of the things, I just want to follow up a little bit about Jess with Jesse's comment, because in 2017, I was also writing for the first time about ungrading. And I also use the term for the first time, kind of on the model of unschooling. So, mm -hmm. and which it turns out comes from people like John Holt, who were using the model of the uncola. And so there's a whole um, litany of terms that are unified around this idea of un. Alfie Cohn himself uses the, uh, the term degrading. For me, ungrading is related to alternative assessment, but it's not alternative assessment. There, and um, I, I want to point out that um, Josh Eiler is writing a book called Scarlet Letters, which is about grading. And he's got a whole bunch of very precise terms about the different kinds of alternative assessments and that from contract grading, labor-based grading, um, specs grading and all that. But for me, uh, the idea of ungrading is not focusing on grades, moving the attention from grades to learning. And there may be different ways of doing that. I found as long as I was putting a grade on anything, I could tell students over and over again, don't pay attention to the grade. But as long as there was a grade, they were paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. I could say the points don't matter, but as long as there were points, that's what they were trained and socialized to pay attention to. So it was only by removing all conversation about grades that I was able to really get the students to relax and stop focusing on the grades, but different people are using the term ungrading in different ways. Some people don't like it anymore. Some people are afraid to use it. They're afraid they're gonna get in trouble. I had a grad student ask me, they were applying for jobs and they practice ungrading, but they asked me, should they use this term in their cover letter? And I warned them, maybe I suggested, maybe don't use the term right now because it isn't widely known, although it's becoming more widely known. But um, some people in the non-grading, alternative grading, ungrading world want to distinguish their own practices from other people's practices. So I like to think of it as an ungrading umbrella because anybody who wants to question the orthodoxies is welcome, but other people want more precision and nuance and that's okay too. Jesse, do you wanna add anything to what Susan said? 
Yeah, I think I, so the way that I've defined it in my writing is raising an eyebrow at grades as a systemic mm -hmm. practice, distinct from simply not grading. The word is a present participle, an ongoing process, not a static set of practices. And really what's important for me there is that ungrading is a conversation. It's a series of conversations. And ideally, it's conversations that teachers are having together with their colleagues. It's a conversation that teachers are having with their institutions, and also a conversation that teachers are having with students. And when I say that it's distinct from not grading, part of the part of what underlies that is people often point to ungrading and uh, and suggest that it's a misnomer because most people who are doing some version of ungrading are still putting a grade on students. Uh, giving students a grade at the end of the term, as um, Susan described in, in her practice, which is also similar to mine. All of the institutions where I've worked have required me to give students a final grade. Ultimately, how I give that final grade is through a set of conversations with students. But ultimately, I don't think it's a misnomer because it isn't necessarily about not grading. It is about decentering grades, but in some ways, it's also about shining a light on grades. Which so there's kind of a bit of a um, a conundrum there that you're both decentering grades at the same time as you're having hard conversations about grading because ultimately I think the only way we can decenter grades is to ask hard questions about how grades work, what grades do to us, how grades change the relationships that we have one another. So ultimately, I just wrote a post today that I published called "Do We Need the Word Ungrading?" And ultimately, I argued that I, I don't. I'm not necessarily attached to any one specific word to describe this work. What I think we need is the huge number of people who are using different approaches to grades and using the word ungrading in some cases to ask hard questions about grading. And in that piece, I argued that for me, there was two components to my definition. And one is that it's an active and ongoing critique of grades as a system. And two, that it's the decision to do what we can, depending on our labor conditions, to carefully dismantle that system. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean we snap our fingers and tomorrow grades cease to exist. Grades have actually, in some ways, constructed so many of the systems that, that we work in. They are the fabric of a lot of those systems. So trying to decenter them requires us to kind of take a hard look at that fabric and start to break it apart and start to figure out how we can build upon a different foundation. Very interesting. Casey, do you have anything to add? I think they hit most of it. I would just echo what they said. It's a shifting of the learner's focus from the grades and really moving that focus towards actually learning. We all know that the learners are there to gain some knowledge and especially in the health field, we are looking for them to be able to take care of people in one way or another. And so in most health professions fields, they have to pass an exam at the end. So we want them to truly know that material, but not just know it to pass the exam. We want them to know it to be able to apply it to their healthcare practice. And especially when you have those grades, there's that huge focus on, I have to get an A, I have to get a B, rather than I need to learn this to take care of my patients. And so it's really shifting it away from 
giving them that grade and saying, let's look at this as a patient. Let's look at this as the material that you need to know to do your job. And I'd say it isn't simply just throwing out grades. It's not just passing or failing someone. There is a lot of work to it. Um, as Jesse mentioned, it's kind of a conversation. I use a lot of self-assessments where the learners will kind of evaluate themselves. And a lot of places do require us to submit grades at the end of the semester. And so they still get a grade at the end, but it's kind of a culmination of just different techniques and approaches that don't rely on that letter grade or the percentage attached to a paper or assignment or something like that so that they can focus on truly learning and mastering the content. It's, it's definitely, this is um, kind of like maybe when the car first came out and people were like, I'm not going to use that. <laughs> I'm going to stick with my horse, right? A little bit of fear around this, I'm sure. So we'll see with the next, you know, several questions, how people feel about it. So the next one is, how do you think the process of, or the idea behind ungrading affects students? So Katie, you're up first on this. Yeah, thanks. So um, I, what I've noticed, so as I mentioned, you know, I, I started um, this work uh, in 2020, so fairly recently. Um, and I've been fortunate to get some funding through the University of British Columbia to do a small um, qualitative research project uh, on one of the approaches to ungrading in that first year course that I teach. So um, for this project, we spoke to 13 Masters of Occupational Therapy students. Um, and for this um, sort of summative assessment, uh, students are given a choice. So they can choose to do an online open book um, more traditional test, and I post, you know, sample questions, sample answers, we chat about it, etc. Um, or they can choose to do um, a more creative project where they apply a critically reflexive lens to be, uh, to develop sort of an artifact that represents the learning that they're still wrestling with. So the learning that is not resolved, you know, at the end of this course. And I got that um, idea from my colleague and friend, um, Dr. Judy Chan, who's an educational consultant at our Center for Teaching and Learning Technology here at UBC, where she encouraged me to, to use that frame of like, what, what are you still needing to learn about? And I, I mean, it really aligns with the philosophy that underpins the broad spectrum of ungrading. Um, so we, we uh, interviewed both students who did the test and students who did the um, creative project. And the creative project is a blend of uh, students um, self-evaluating uh, as well as uh, getting feedback and evaluation from, from myself um, or um, uh, one of the other instructors, um, Ellie Park. So uh, in this, you know, what we're hearing from students, we haven't done the full analysis yet, we're just coming to that, but in looking through the transcripts and speaking with the, the research assistant who led the interviews, you know, what students share is what we already know, you know, that students, first and foremost feel seen as human beings, which aligns with the critical pedagogy that you were speaking to, Jesse. I mean, that's central to critical pedagogy of really creating educational opportunities where students uh, are seen as complex human beings and that they're seen as more than, you know, quote unquote, just students. And, and that was the language that students used in the interview that they really felt um, even cared about and valued, you know, by myself as their instructor. And in the um, creative project, you know, they're encouraged to use their own passions and interests in, in developing this artifact. So 
students really also valued the opportunity to have that autonomy to really bring forward and center their um, strengths and their interests and to share that with myself, to share that with others, and then to really use that to explore continued learning. So, um, and the other piece that students really valued was again, normalizing that, you know, I don't expect you to know everything at the end of this course. I don't know everything and I teach this course. <laughs> so just normalizing and, and really highlighting the importance of understanding what we don't know, um, normalizing and destigmatizing that we were, we will always be learning and really providing students with an authentic experience where they can engage in a way that aligns with their interests, um, with their strengths, engage with that continued learning. And, and part of the project too, is that they develop a bit of a plan of like, how am I gonna continue to maybe use my artifact and engage with this learning as I enter my first practicum, which follows the end of this course. So, you know, for me, you know, that's, that's what's really resonated um, in terms of how it affects students. You know, first and foremost, they, they, they know that they are seen as human beings. And for me, that's everything. You know, if we're not treating students <laughs> at every step of the way as human beings, then we're, we're really failing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Susan, what, what do you have to say about this? I ask my students every semester um, on both um, uh, named reflections and also anonymous surveys, how they feel about ungrading. And I would say every semester, probably about 90% of the students love it and prefer it and tell me things like, for the first time, I'm learning for myself and not for the grade. Or mm -hmm. they say things like, because I didn't have to do it, I wanted to do the work. Or the work in this class was so interesting that I did it before I did the work for my boring, hard graded class. <laughs> um, or they say, I don't know why more professors don't do this. They say all kinds of things. Um, there are often a few, maybe every semester I have one or two who remain committed to the conventional status quo because that's what they're familiar with. And they've been successful in this system and they like it because it tells them precisely what to do. I, I had a student a few years ago who let, she wasn't completely on board. She'd had a couple classes with me and she liked me and I liked her and we got along well and everything. And she never was openly hostile, but she had some reservations. And then she graduated and she got a job and she wrote to me later and said, now I see what you were doing. Now that I'm out of school and in the world and working and, um, self-motivating and judging myself and the quality of my work, I understand exactly the point of your ungrading practices. So I, I think most of my students really rise to the occasion. They learn a lot. I, I promise them basically at the beginning and throughout the semester, we're going to be having fun, learning a lot, working together and it won't be stressful. And the student well-being, the student's full humanity are definitely part of the equation. I, I'd like to add one other thing. I, I have a lot of assignments where students have a lot of choices. And 
they can do something called an un essay if they want, which might be a podcast and it might be an infographic and it might be a film and it might be a poem and it could be a sculpture or a dance or whatever it is they want to do. And for many of them, they want to try something like this, but they've never dared do it before because they might not be good at it. And they realize in this class that they have no danger because if it's not great, they can say so and it won't harm them. And so I have students taking risks on things that are meaningful and in, in, um, creative for them. And they often are really excited about it. And you know, certainly excitement is a really good motivator, much better than a fear of a bad grade. Mm -hmm. So I would really welcome any anybody who's considering ungrading at least partially to talk to your students about grades and what they've done to them, the fear, the terror, the stress of, that conventional grading practices bring and see if by removing some of that, we can free the students to be a little bit more um, seen, but also free to learn in ways that matter to them. Thank you so much. Casey, do you have anything to add about this? Again, just kind of echoing what people have already said, it, it has had a really positive impact on my students' ability to learn and master those skills. I teach both undergraduate and doctoral uh, students, and I use this in both levels. And um, my doctoral students do a lot of memos and self-evaluations and reading through their memos. A lot of times, unprompted, they will report, I like the setup of this class. I can focus on learning. I'm able to learn a lot while focusing on my mistakes without the punitive nature of grading. And so even though they still notice their mistakes, it's not an, oh, no, I'm failing or I did bad it's a I'm going to learn from this mistake which is what we want them to do right mm -hmm. so the undergrads also have reported that they felt less stress and they again are able to learn from those mistakes without being terrified of failing a class or doing poorly um, so Again, I'm going to say that in health professions, that's huge because we want them to learn the material. We want them to be able to take that into their future jobs. So just a huge positive impact. I will say there are learners who do like that external motivation. It feels great to get an A, but in the end, everyone has reported some sort of positive impact from experiencing the alternative grading in my courses. So let's say like right now the people listening are like oh yeah i want to do this and they feel super excited so to you what do you think is one of the most important skills or an important skill that an instructor would need to implement this type of change successfully jesse i'll have you go first yeah i'm actually gonna apologize i think it's a wonderful question but i'm gonna sidestep it a little bit um, okay. And it's mostly because I think that there's something that we need, there's something we need first. Okay. And uh, in part, because I want to take this out of the space of instructor responsibility. I think oftentimes 
uh, when we're talking about pedagogical practice, we, we imagine that these are things that any teacher can just implement tomorrow. And ultimately, I think what we need first is we need some systemic change. And so I would actually ask, what skills do institutions and institutional administrators need in order to help better support and prepare teachers to do this kind of work? And so I, to me, the work begins with us ranting up to our institutions and asking institutions to create a fertile ground for us to do this kind of work. And what does that mean? For example, in higher education, collaboration is discouraged systemically at almost every institution that I've visited. You'll often hear things like, well, we could collaboratively teach, but how would like how would it count? Who would get the credit for the course? How would I talk about my participation in that course? Who would get paid for the course? And so there's all these systemic barriers to collaboration. And ultimately, I think the only way we develop our pedagogies is in collaboration with other teachers. Another example is that less than half of teachers in higher education get basically any preparation at all for the work of teaching. And so how do we change our institutions so that our institutions are adequately preparing teachers for the work of teaching and then also supporting that work? And how do we change our institutions so that the work of teaching is valorized to a degree where time spent on improving our teaching is seen as valuable? So to me, if those institutional transformations don't happen or begin to happen at every single institution, it's really hard for me to imagine what individual teachers can do. Now, that said, I think that we, wor we work within systems, and ultimately, we have to figure out how to negotiate those systems. So to answer your question more directly, I would say that the things that we can do as individual teachers is figure out how to negotiate the institutional systems where we work. How can yeah, we balance ranting up to our institutions while also protecting our own livelihood and making changes in our own classrooms. I appreciate you bringing up that. That is incredibly important. And uh, I leave that to my own, you know, ignorance about ungrading and thinking, oh yeah, we can just do it. But you're very, very right. That without that support, it'll be very difficult. So Casey, you have something to add to this too. What do you say? I, you know, there's a lot of things that someone needs, but I think flexibility is one too. Uh, it's not going to be perfect the first time you do it. You can't wake up one day and say, I'm going to ungrade my class. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So um, when you do first implement it, it probably isn't going to go as perfectly as you hope it does. You're going to probably need to make adjustments the next time you run that class with that ungrading or alternative approaches. Um, and I'd say that not all of the approaches, you know, there's different assessment techniques that you can use. Not all of them are going to work the same for every course. I mentioned I teach both undergrads and graduate students. I do different things in both of those levels because it works differently for each level. So flexibility. That's great. Katie, what's your, what's your skill? Well, I don't know if it's, <laughs> if it's my own skill per se, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think having a really clear understanding of why you are engaging in ungrading work. Um, I think it connects to Jesse's point that, um, and I think specific, I mean, I can speak to, you know, um, health professions education, but, you know, health professions education is rooted in a scientific epistemology, which 
you know, um, sort of valorizes objectivity and rationality and distancing of oneself from the other. And that permeates through in terms of how we assess health profession students. So through ungrading, you're really pushing back against that sort of hidden epistemology that pervades um, health professions education. And so I think really being taking the time to really think about, you know, what's driving you, what's motivating you in doing this work will not only allow you to articulate a clear rationale why, and then provide, of course, all the evidence-based reasons uh, why you're doing it, but it'll also sort of sustain you um, in, in pushing against that, that larger system that really doesn't uh, you know, I mean, it, at least for, you know, in Canada, you know, higher ed institutions struggle to center relationship. It's just, it's not how the institutions were built. Um, yeah. So I think having that kind of clear why you're doing it can help you um, sort of with uh, maintaining the work. Awesome. And last but not least, Susan, what's yours? I wouldn't call this a skill, but I would call it a condition. And it's connected a little bit with what Jesse was talking about, that we work within institutions and many people, probably most faculty now are not tenured like I am. And many people are in positions of precarity. I did that way, way back in the beginning of my career, um, but graduate students, adjuncts, um, postdocs, people without tenure, lecturers, in terms of the structures of higher ed and then their own positionality, people of color, women, people with disabilities, people in the LGBTQ community, uh, people from non-US, in the US context backgrounds, people who are not first language speakers of English. There are a whole bunch of people for whom higher ed is more dangerous and mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't feel safe taking the risk and doing something that is not conventional. So I think the ungrading practices are spreading, but one of the reasons I wanted to publish this book, this collection, I was the editor, not the writer, of course, um, was so that people in positions with less power could take this book to their supervisor and say, look, there's research, it's respectable. I didn't make this up. I'm not being flaky and lazy, but I'm doing something aligned with good practices. But at the same time, I encourage people to find a buddy, somebody at the same level of institutional um, hierarchy as them with whom they can be honest because it's not easy to just do something different. So somebody with whom you can process the experience, but then also find a champion, somebody, a department chair, a vice provost, somebody at the teaching and learning center, somebody who can also vouch for these practices and show that these are not one-off things that somebody is doing, but that they there is a growing recognition that what we're doing has to change. It is not working. And because it's not working, we are, in my view, obligated to change it, but we can't all change it as individuals. And those of us with more security, I think, have the obligation to go first. Love it. I love it. All right. Next question. Uh, what are some potential drawbacks of impl implementing this kind of a assessment strategy? Katie. Yeah, so I think folks have already mentioned this, but, um, and 
and uh, you know Jesse and Susan have mentioned this in their work and and Casey and her research so um, you know we sort of conflate traditional methods of assessments with being more rigorous credible the gold standard and any movement away from that can be quite sort of fear inducing that somehow we're being less rigorous we're we're not evaluating students in a way that um that sort of just is in line with like historically how we how we view best practice around student learning so it's so heavily entrenched in how we think um about you know best practices and student assessment being um you know pencil paper tests exams essays etc so i think um you know when you're introducing um this work it's really important to be transparent and um, engage in dialogue with you know students and faculty and staff around you know why you're doing it and really being clear and transparent in your um explanation of that i think susan mentioned that before um so that so that there's no surprises that you can unpack some of the judgments that are you know um attached to you know even the word ungrading that can you know the reactions it can evoke in people um so just providing that time to really you know gather you know evidence you can really contextualize your your reasoning um and i think you know like other folks have shared um you know ungrading isn't an all or nothing um so really letting folks know that it's a continuum and and educating folks on like how you will um be stepping into this work um and that there's many ways to do it i think can help uh, mitigate some of the some of like the tension around it awesome what do you think casey i think that um some of the drawbacks might be faculty might feel that it's a lot of work uh, it usually is going to include a lot of feedback now we already give feedback but i've found that ungrading or alternate assessment approaches has required me to give even more feedback and so people have asked me well how do you have the time for that i make the time <laughs> i have things set in my calendar to dedicate that time to providing that feedback. Um, like I said, you should be giving feedback anyways. It just might be a little bit more substantial. Uh, I will also echo what Jesse had mentioned with the institutions. There is a little bit of red tape or requirements we have. I am still required to give a grade. And so figuring out how to do this but in the end giving a grade at the end of the semester mm -hmm. as for the learners um, some of them might miss that motivation that external motivation of trying to achieve a certain grade however my learners that do thrive off of that motivation have reported that they feel like they still learned more without that distraction and so that's a really great thing where you know we're getting rid of that external motivation and moving it to a i'm learning i'm having fun um, moving it to that internal motivation which helps the learning process so there are drawbacks but i think that there's ways to kind of work around them as katie mentioned contextualize it i put it in my syllabus and i give the students reasons why i'm doing this i have a paragraph that explains what i'm doing why i'm doing it and how it should hopefully benefit them in the long run i love that so our final question we're getting at the close of our time here the final question is so now if a faculty member is super excited and very interested and wants to to think about doing this where should they start 
I'm going to start with you, Susan. Well, everything is intertwined. I just gave a talk a few days ago about four dimensions of my own teaching transformation. And you can't really change one thing without changing another thing. Um, but I think it's important to think about the overall goals and motivations of both the instructor and the students, try to figure out how to create conditions that will foster intrinsic motivation in terms of feedback. It doesn't all have to be instructor to student. There can be student-student uh, feedback, which I find actually very helpful. But if there's one thing that I think is really transformative in, in this thing that I'm obsessed about right now, which is students' agency in their own education, I would say the most critical thing is reflection, that the students can be trained and prepared to do their own reflection on their learning and the product of their learning so that the instructor isn't even completely necessary all the time. And that I think prepares them so well for life after school. One of the things I'm really committed to right now is self-directed education and the students own confidence in themselves as an independent learner, which they will have to be once school is over. So if we can sever a little bit of the dependence between the student and the teacher by having the students begin with their own reflection, I have found that really, really transformative. The students don't all like it because it takes, it's another task that they have to do, but it is the most useful thing I think that I read all semester. I often learn more about the students learning from their reflection than I do from anything else. And it's not, I, anyway, I, so I, I would say that would be one place to begin. Great. Thank you, Susan. Jesse, what about you? Yeah, I, um, I, I think that it's worth going back to something that came up a little bit earlier, which is making the distinction between ungrading and alternative assessment practices. Lots of different kinds of alternative assessment practices. So to some degree, when I think about, for me, what's at the core of ungrading and what do I do to begin doing that work? That for me, again, is a series of conversations. And those conversations start by talking to our students. And so I think any teacher can do this immediately, um, tomorrow in some cases, which is have a conversation with students about grades. Ask students how and when they learn. Ask how being graded makes them feel. Ask what motivates them. Talk really honestly about how it feels to grade. Talk really honestly about our own experience of our own education. Having that conversation with students, I think, is a really great start to understand our students better and also understand how whatever assessment mechanism we're using is impacting our students. And then if I think about my own approach to assessment, which is also to use quite a bit of self-reflection, uh, I've read over 23 years thousands of letters that students have written to me. And ultimately, those letters are a, um, a source for me of sort of deep knowledge about who the students that I've worked with are. But what I found more than anything over all of the years that I've received those letters is that 
each of my students is different. I can't make a statement about my students as a group. And ultimately those letters are what have allowed me to see my students as so utterly different from one another so that each of them is experienced in the class in different ways. And that's what called me to build so much flexibility into my courses so that each student, regardless of what they're experiencing and how they're experiencing their education, can find their way in, can find their way into the community that we have in the course. So ultimately, those are two sort of different things, but connected things that I think people can do. It's very, very empowering. So for our final statement for today, Casey, what would you suggest? I would suggest taking a step back and looking at the course that you want to do this in and seeing what can be easily adjusted without completely redoing your course. There might be some things that are fairly easy to use alternative assessments or to ungrade. Um, for me, I'm in a health professions field and we do a lot of laboratory classes and that's what they're going to be doing their jobs. And this is really a competency. We're looking at, can you do the job with a minimum competency? And a lot of health fields use competent competency-based assessment or competency-based education. And that's a really good starting place to do some minimal grading. Are they competent or are they not? Did they pass that skill or did they fail? So that, that's just an example. Find things in your course that you're already doing that can be an easy adjustment and kind of dip your toes into what is easy to adjust rather than completely redoing your class, because you might not have to completely redo anything to do this. That's, that's wonderful advice. And I'm going to end this with some advice from, it could be my faculty at Rush that might be listening to this or faculty elsewhere. If you use the learning management system canvas, uh, you can use the mastery grade book instead of the traditional grade book. And the mastery grade book can help you if you would like to do something like this since it's just a little bit different than having numbers. And also if you need a support, if you need support, and no matter where you are, if you have a center for teaching, ours is called City, Every, almost everyone has one, go to them and see who might be able to be your champion and might be able to help you because you don't have to do this all by yourself. And there's a lot of resources out there. We're going to add resources to the description, including uh, stuff from Jesse, Susan, and Katie, and Casey. So we'll include everything that you uh, can go to there to get you started. But I really appreciate everyone's time today. This, this podcast has made me feel so wonderful inside, warm and fuzzy. I don't know about all of you, but thank you so, so much for your time today, everyone. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thank you. Super spend this time with you all. This has been really um, fun and empowering. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for Teaching in the City. This podcast is produced by the Center for Teaching Excellence and Innovation at Rush University. To learn more about City and to find additional resources and events on teaching and learning at Rush, search for CTEI Rush in your web browser or find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. Thank you.